Here we go, man. Work in the time of Corona. Uh, yeah, I have nothing. <laughs> <laughs> I was trying to think of some like witty pop culture reference where I could swap out the word Corona, but nothing. You're not up on your literary references, Brian? I am not. Just surprise, surprise. <laughs> give me give me like a computer nerdy like video game reference and maybe I'll get it. Uh one one zero 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 one one zero one one zero one one. Dude, come on. You can't say that on the podcast. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Ever, he didn't mean it. We're gonna get in trouble for that. Let's dig in. Okay. Welcome to episode 338 of the Design Details Podcast. I'm Brian Levin. And I'm Marshall Bach. Welcome back for another episode. Brian, we got an interview today. It has been a long time since we had an interview. Yeah, too long. But we got a good one. Yes, we've got a great interview coming up. But before we get into it, I want to thank our sponsor for making this episode possible. Our sponsor this week is Fathom Analytics. Fathom Analytics is a privacy-first analytics tool that you should be using on all of your websites. Uh, We talked about it last week, and I can look here, and I see that nine people have uh, started their trial of Fathom, which is awesome. But I know there's a lot more of you out there that have a personal website or a side project website, and you want to have some analytics on there. You want to know what people are visiting, where they're coming from, what devices they're on. Well, Fathom gets you all of that and more in a privacy-first package. What does privacy-first mean? Well, they don't use cookies, so you don't have to display cookie notices on your website. Uh, They don't track your visitors across all the other websites that they visit. It's all just isolated and unique and, and, and personal to your site. There's no personal information being saved. They have hundreds of customers at this point that are tracking tens of millions of page views every month. So this thing scales. It doesn't matter how big you are. Fathom's gonna handle all of your traffic, especially if something goes viral. Let's say you publish uh, a really compelling article on your blog and it gets uh, the front page of Reddit. Fathom's gonna handle it. They're gonna tell you exactly where all those people are coming from and, and what they're reading. This is a great tool that I use on all of my websites. I use it on my personal site. We use it for design details, for Spec FM, uh, for a couple other side projects that I have running. And it is fantastic. You pay for it, which is kind of your guarantee that their business model is about just making money and not reselling data. So you pay for it. But the good news is we have a discount for you. If you go to designdetails.fm slash fathom, you will get $20 off your first invoice. I uh, recommend just starting a trial, put it on your website, see how simple it is to start gathering some data, get those numbers flowing through the pipes and uh, just see how it feels. It's fast, it's simple, it's really easy to use and it's gonna respect all of the people who visit your website. So give it a try. Go to designdetails.fm slash fathom. All right, and we've got some new supporters this week on Patreon. Yeah. Huge shout out to our newest, very important pixels. Thank you to Christian Yell, He He Si, Rachel Moroski, Rafli Nurfala, and Tanvir Singh Mahendra. I think we'd nailed all of them. 
Did we get I'm it? I'm gonna guess we didn't, but we definitely tried. I, I'm gonna I'm gonna applaud your effort, Brian. I think we Googled and and referenced uh, some pronunciations for most of these. So hopefully we got them. Thank you everyone for supporting the show. Yes. If you didn't know, you can support us on Patreon for just a buck a month. You get access to sponsor free episodes. As well as access to bonus land. Bonus land, bonus land, bonus land. That's at patreon.com slash design details. So thank you, everybody. All right, Marshall, we got a little bit of follow-up before we get into our interview. You want to kick us off here? Yeah, so apparently for a long time we've had a Gmail account that we haven't really used too much, Brian. It's designdetailsfm <laughs> at gmail.com. Mm-hmm. Uh, makes sense. It's a good. It's a good get. But we hadn't really been using it. So we have reactivated that account or made it more applicable across the different uh, social media platforms that we use. And so now we have a YouTube channel, Brian. Oh. Yeah. That I think in the future we're going to start posting our podcast with just the album art onto YouTube. So you can listen there as well. Yeah, I, I'm excited to try it. I've, I'm so skeptical of podcasts without any video companion because like we're just going to have album artwork and maybe waveform or something. Mm-hmm. That feels boring to me, but there's probably people who would prefer to have all of their sort of media subscriptions a little bit more consolidated. So actually YouTube might be the preferred listening avenue for people. So we should try it. And maybe, who knows, maybe there's people on YouTube that are interested in design who will discover the podcast through that. And then they'll convert over to a podcast listening app. And I, I guess at the end of the day, it doesn't really matter. But it seems like uh, incrementally more work to just be on a new place that people can choose to listen to if that's better for them. Mm-hmm. Yep. Trying to make it better for the listeners, Brian. Meet them where they are, is what they say. Yeah. Well, similarly, um, one thing that we're going to try as well is we've revived our Instagram accounts. We actually have an Instagram account as well. Design Details FM is the handle there. And it has just remained dormant for years at this point. Mm-hmm. So every week we've been tweeting little preview snippets of you know some audio with like a little waveform for each episode. So I think we might start sharing those on Instagram as well. Mm -hmm. But I feel like Instagram is also an interesting medium where we could try sharing other things, like it's visual medium. And the the visual part of this podcast is what we struggle with the most. Yeah. So I don't know, maybe there's something there. If you have ideas, dear listener, let us know. We're we're just kind of riffing here, but we're going to try putting some stuff on Instagram and YouTube. So if you want to follow us, uh, Design Details FM on, on both places. Cool. All right, we got an interview. Let's get into this interview, Brian. Tell us about who we're talking to. So today we're talking to Meg Lewis. Meg Lewis is a designer, writer, comedian, coach, podcaster, freelancer, business owner, like on and on and on. Meg is prolific. Meg is fun to talk to. And we had a great conversation I want to just give a little bit of quick context because we do reference this a few times in the episode, but this is actually the second time we've recorded with Meg. Yeah, We recorded our first interview together a month ago at this point, mm-hmm. and audio done got corrupted. Technical difficulties made it difficult. Yeah, we lost that first interview, which is sad because it was actually you know such a fun conversation. That one was like an hour and a half of just getting to know Meg. Mm-hmm. Um, but anyways, so this time uh, we made the audio work. We avoided the technical difficulties, and we get to catch up with Meg. So without further ado, here's our interview with Meg Lewis. 
Welcome back to the show, Meg. It's good to uh, talk to you again. <laughs> yes, hello. How's it going? It's going okay. I I can't say that it's going great because the world is falling apart. But <laughs> yeah, what are you talking about? <laughs> it's going as well as it can in my little quarantine podcast recording booth. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So maybe let's set some context for people who happen to be listening to this. I don't know. In 10 years. Uh, it is currently March of the year 2020. Mm-hmm. The world is currently experiencing the coronavirus pandemic. We are all working from home. We are on lockdown. Uh, Whole Foods is out of toilet paper. Uh, <laughs> the Apple stores are shut down. What else is what else has gone wrong? I mean, people are dying. I'm trying to keep this light, but all the all the sports are canceled sports, except for yeah. esports, <laughs> except for Marshall's Overwatch. <laughs> but yeah, it's a very strange time to be alive, right? It sure is. And I've been saying hope- that for four years, Brian. <laughs> <laughs> I'm hoping that people who are listening from the very far future are having a nice chuckle and not, you know, I I imagine that everybody's just shaking their head because this is probably a shameful part of history. Yeah, yeah. They're they're sifting so. through the rubble of civilization while they listen on their walk. Yes. <laughs> I wonder what designers were talking about 10 years ago. I'm pretty interested in that. Well, speaking of which, so actually this is kind of good timing because Marshall and I were planning what we should have as a topic on a future episode anyways, and the topic of working from home came up and how to do it. And since we're all sort of stuck, at least uh, I've been at home for two weeks now and Marshall worked from home last week, Mm -hmm. uh, maybe we could talk a little bit about some strategies for designers just thinking about working from home, isolating themselves, uh, Tips to get through these trying times. Yeah, what's your what's your pedigree on working from home, Meg? <laughs> so I personally, I've always been a freelancer, so I have a lot of history of working from home. I off and on have been a member of a shared workspace here and there, and right now I live in Minneapolis and I own a shared workspace, so I do have a place to go if I want human contact while I'm working, but. I'd say I work from home about half the time still because I I like working from home. I always have. It feels comfortable for me. But I generally, I, you know, I enjoy hearing what works about working from home from different people because for me, it's been a real issue for me to compare my working from home style to other people's working styles because I tend to, whenever I work from home, I work a lot because I have this issue where if I'm relaxing or something, I can look across the room and see my computer. And not having that separation is hard for my brain. And it makes me feel bad that I'm not working, or it just reminds me that maybe I can do some work instead, or, you know, I can watch the show and also work. Mm-hmm. And so I have this, I, I wouldn't call it a problem. I just thought it was a problem for a long time where I was having really fun with work and I was enjoying it and I'd find myself, you know, eating dinner and then immediately working again. <laughs> and mm, yeah. and so it became and it has become this thing where I just work from home all the time and I'm just working constantly. But I think that I realized eventually that it's actually as long as I'm healthy and I'm still taking care of myself and my relationships, I actually think that there's nothing wrong with that. Um, sometimes I go through patterns where I forget to eat altogether because I'm so mm-hmm. into what I'm doing. And I realize that that is dangerous. <laughs> <laughs> I have literally the opposite problem. <laughs> really? I have the same problem. I get Forgetting like, to eat? 
yeah, well, I'll get stuck doing something and, you know, it'll be 1130. I'm like, oh, I'll just finish this thing. And then it's like 130. I'm like, oh, fuck. <laughs> Oops. I don't know if it's just because of the context surrounding our working from home right now, which is the coronavirus pandemic. But I find that I'm looking for any kind of distraction to just get away from the computer. And so for me, that's going to the kitchen and eating a snack. And I'm like, definitely lacking some self-control in that department, at least for the last week. That's a really good point. I was I was definitely on social media too much. And I know that's so dangerous because especially Twitter, which is what I'm normally on all day. Yeah. I'm pretty good at turning that off and just focusing on my working. But this past week, I have just been on Twitter all the time. And everybody's emotions are so high about everything right now. So then I was absorbing all these emotions. and It was just making me feel absolutely terrible, but I couldn't pull myself away. And then I was getting no work done. And so I was finding my Myself just shouting nope and standing up and walking away every so yeah. <laughs> often. But then I just kept coming back. So I really hope that either this whole lockdown quarantine situation ends soon, which would be really nice. It'd be best case scenario. But I think it's not going to end that soon. I think we might have to deal with this for a while longer. So I'm really hoping that some sense of normalcy is able to be garnished so that I can continue working. But I know that most small business owners and freelancers are really struggling right now because it feels wrong to resume normal life. It feels weird and like you're doing something bad. And so uh, for me, it's it's made me feel really guilty about posting on social media anything about work at all or anything that I would normally yeah. do. But I actually have to keep doing that in order to keep surviving economically. So it's mm. such a confusing time. I mean, I can't, I don't think we can escape the fact that we are all incredibly lucky that what we do can be done from home. Like we should acknowledge that right out of the gate that (laughs) these complaints are are minor in in the grand scheme of things. But I wanted to jump back to your earlier point, Meg, about this idea of creating barriers between work and life. Because from my experience, this has been something that I've dealt with for a few years now. And then I think is probably one of the more common struggles for new people working from home is figuring out how to turn off the computer, especially people in major cities where maybe their office is their bedroom and like they don't have another room in their apartment to go Mm. where they aren't thinking about the computer or looking at a screen or something like that. So have you found triggers or useful tips for creating that sort of disconnection and knowing when to shut off? Yeah, at, I think um, a simple list of the amount of tax that, tasks that I have to do that day has been really helpful because it sometimes I fall into this pattern where because I'm self-employed, there is an endless amount of things that I could always be doing. And I have so many ideas all the time. And for me, a lot of the times I get so sucked into how fun all of that is. And I just keep going and I keep going. And it's been really helpful for me to, at the beginning of the week, even though I have an infinite amount of to-dos that I could do, I try to think through what I absolutely have to do and then that week and then divvy it out through the week. And that way I end up with like a small set of tasks to do every day. And now I get to the point where I'm just trying to complete those tasks and that's how I know when it's time to stop working. And that has helped me so much. Um, most of the time lately, I have too many tasks to where I can't even get them done by midnight. <laughs> and, then I, mm. and then they just move over to the next day. That has been happening to me lately, which in, in that case is not good. Uh, <laughs> but generally, as long as I keep it to an amount of tasks that's possible for me to achieve in hopefully eight-ish hours, sometimes less, sometimes more, 
um, then it helps to just trigger in my brain, okay, I'm done. I did all the things. Now I can go, I don't know, walk around the block or something. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Now I can go pace my kitchen because <laughs> yeah. I'm supposed to stay inside. Shit. Uh. Well, actually, are, are you two, what's the situation been like in terms of getting outside and getting away from your your home in general, socializing? Like, What's that looking like for you right now? I have been trying to have appointments with friends on FaceTime and stuff. I do this a lot because most of my best friends don't live in my city. So a lot of my friends are long-distance relationships, and I do this with them anyway. So this has been an easy practice to continue. But I like to do a thing where I schedule a regular FaceTime with them. And sometimes, depending on the friend, maybe I'll have a glass of wine and they will too. Or we'll just do like the stuff that we used to do together um, just in front of our cameras instead. And I, you know, whenever, before I started doing it, I was like, I don't know, it's not the same. I'd rather not. Um, but when I, once I started doing it, I feel so amazing after I do this with every friend. It makes me feel so good. I miss them a lot less afterwards. It helps so much. So it's been extra important for me to make sure that I'm doing that with everyone in my life during this time. So the people that are physically normally around me to make sure that I do that with them too. But I think it's helpful because most of the time when I'm video chatting with people, it's in a work situation. So I just have to remember to take all these relationships that I normally don't video chat with them and bring them into that realm. um, So that way I can keep socializing. And it really, really does help. It's not the same, of course, but it's so helpful. Uh, you're an extrovert, right? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> Just wanted to make sure we're yeah. on the same page. Right now. Yeah. Uh, I'm like, uh, this is a good thing. I only have like three friends because I don't have that many people to keep up with. Uh, I mean, I think, yeah, this is probably a different kind of challenging for different personality types, right? Like there are people who get so much energy out of being in an office or being in a co-working space. Uh, certainly people who just get productivity out of it, maybe for reasons that are like having people look at my screen or knowing that people are looking at my screen forces me to be more productive. So what have you found in terms of, uh, you mentioned you divvy up these tasks throughout the week and then each day you have maybe a certain set of things you want to get done. Have you found any issues with productivity when you've been stuck at home, specifically around Focus or you know checking social media yes. too much. And how, how do you get back on track? Yeah, it's. I think it's some sort of chemical situation within my brain. Some days I wake up and I'm just not in the mood. My brain is distractible and everything will take me away from working. And other days I feel so clear and I know exactly what I need to be doing. And I do this thing that I call going inside of the computer where my brain just transports <laughs> into exactly what I need to be doing and I lose track of hours of time because I'm working so hard mm, and I'm totally mm. into it. It's amazing. Mm. But I, what I've learned throughout my career of working from home and working on my own schedule is that I now I listen to my brain. So if my brain is not in the mood and it's fighting against every task I'm trying to complete, then I listen to it and I go do something completely different. I give my brain what it wants in that moment. And most of the time, once I give my brain what it needed in that moment, it comes around and I end up being productive later in the afternoon. So it just means that my schedule for that day wasn't necessarily looking like what I had intended for it to look like. But I end up making so much better work whenever I just listen to my brain and give it what what it wants. But I realize that most people's brains don't work like that. A lot of people's mm. brains don't like working. So Yeah, my brain is a terrorist and I do not <laughs> negotiate with terrorists. <laughs> yeah, Marshall, you you're the newbie to like this duration of working from home. What's it been like on your end? 
Man, I, f- I feel like I have kind of a different problem than you've been describing, Meg. I have this thing where, well, okay. So my day is usually broken up a bunch, right? I have lots of meetings and those meetings happen in different rooms and I have to walk between different buildings and different rooms to go to those meetings. Plus I take smoke breaks and I have a commute in the morning and the evening and all of that stuff is gone, right? Like getting to a different meeting is as easy as hanging up from this meeting and dialing into the next one. Uh, I don't have a commute, so I wake up and I go out to the couch and I sit down and turn my computer on and now I have an extra half hour to 45 minutes in the morning and half hour to 45 minutes in the evening. And then, yeah, it's easy to forget about lunch because there's not a cafe to go to wow. and get free lunch from. <laughs> so it's like I, I've worked a ton more this week. But one of the things I've I've really noticed has kind of taken a toll is, like I said, I've been working off of the couch and I haven't really separated normal life from work life. And my computer's always right there plugged in and charging. So it's like it's real easy to pick it back up at 9 p.m. You know what I mean? So I think this next week, I'm going to start working out of my office. So it's just in a different room. So I feel like work happens in that room and then life happens in the other rooms, you know? Yeah, I think that's a good strategy. Like just having the boundary and giving yourself time to like not be tempted by the computer. Even if you're doing other things uh, on a screen, like it's just having the work right there that's so tempting. Mm-hmm. Uh, Plus, I've been working in pajamas. I think next week I'm going to mm. take a shower every day and put on clothes, <laughs> you know, like put in contacts and do my hair and everything. This is one of those tips that gets shared a lot, which yes. is like put on pants and <laughs> like brush your teeth. And well, actually, not that one. You should do that one. Yeah, anyway. I do that one. Anyway. Uh, <laughs> uh, like take a shower, you know, like do things to make it feel like a regular day or feel like you would be seen by other people. And those are these little reminders for your brain that, hey, I, I'm supposed to be doing things that normal people are supposed to be doing and this isn't just an excuse for me to become a slob and let go of all personal care. Maybe that's the problem is so I've always worked from home like one day a week, usually Thursdays, and that's my day to be a slob, right? Oh. And that's my day to like not take a shower, to wear pajamas all day, you know. And I've been treating every day like a Thursday, like a work from home day. And I think that's my problem is I, I, I extended my existing work from home strategy to the entire week and it is not scaling well. <laughs> well, at least it sounds like you have a game plan for next week, right? Yeah, we'll see how it works out. I, I think, well, actually even maybe some better news is you're probably going to have several weeks to try new strategies. That's true. Yeah. <laughs> Meg, you mentioned earlier that uh, you hoped this didn't go on for too long, but that it might go on longer than we hope. What are those time lengths for you? Because I think the short term is going to be at least a month, but uh, how are you thinking about that? Yeah, I mean, I can't say for sure at all. Uh, <laughs> but yeah, I feel predict like... The future, <laughs> predict the future for me, please. Yeah, no, it seems like it's definitely going to go on for a month at least to me, um, but... It you know I, it doesn't seem like anything's moving that quickly, so I would imagine it could be months and months, and then we all have to figure out what the heck we're gonna do 
going forward, which sounds terrifying, but I'm hoping like the optimist in me hopes that we figure out some stuff that we should have had figured out long before. So hopefully this will give us an opportunity to do that. And I just mean like when it comes to working from home structures and companies and corporations figuring out how to make that work. I know a lot of people that work at large corporations that have factory components to them in manufacturing, and that seems like a mess. And it definitely seems like those companies, a lot of them don't have systems in place. And especially for knowing the designers that work at those companies or art directors that do physical shoots all the time, it just seems like a total mess for them and their companies do not have a plan put in place. And so I think they're scrambling a lot. But yes, the optimist in me hopes that this gives us a good opportunity to finally figure these things out. Yeah, I think that's a great point. Like the optimist in me, and I know people are writing about this all the time, is we will come away from this with strategies and ideas for how like globally to a- account for this kind of lifestyle change in the future. And obviously, yeah, there's, as you mentioned, there's some roles that just can't work from home. But of roles that can work from home who previously didn't, like kind of marshal your situation, like technically you could work from home every day, but you have an office and it's kind of nice to be around people and you have a routine at, at, at work. But now it seems as though YouTube and and other companies like that will come away with a game plan for how to account for things like this, right? Yeah, another thing that's been really interesting in this whole scenario is the tools. Like, Meg, how are your tools holding up? Or or both of you, how how are your tools holding up as far as like collaboration and communication? Oh, I thought you meant physical tools. I was like, well, I got them all. Uh, Hammer, I got a screwdriver, (laughs) Phillips and flathead. I have Uh, a whole box. Full of them, they're doing great. Yeah, they, no, they I'm haven't not caught the coronavirus yet. <laughs> oh, my my tools are they're okay. My laptop, I work on a tiny little MacBook. Everyone thinks she's a MacBook Air, but she's actually just a a small MacBook. She's wonderful and great. And every time everyone looks at her, they say, "Meg, is that your only computer?" Because <laughs> it's so small, it seems like it wouldn't do everything I need it to do. And I always say, "Yes, she's amazing. She does everything I need her to." But this week, she's like, "Absolutely not." <laughs> and so, no. I'm that person in the Zoom meeting whenever I log on and I can't hear anyone and no one can hear me and we're just gesturing at each other and then I have to hold up a p- finger and say, "One minute." And then I have to shut down and it happens to me every time. Uh, I'm happy to be that person in the group. There's always somebody, and that's me. And so <laughs> that's my my computer is an important tool, <laughs> and it's really the only one that's having some issues right now. But otherwise, collaboration-wise, meetings-wise, it, it's been really nice. I mean, I have actually never worked with a local client before. <laughs> in Minneapolis. Hmm. I moved here from New York. And so all of my clients are still in New York or San Francisco. So I work remotely for all my clients anyway. So it's not, that's not an issue for me. Um, it's more so figuring out how to rework all of the in-person events that I have. Cause I do so many workshops and talks and all of that. Hmm. And they've obviously all gotten canceled. So it's been me kind of scrambling this week to figure out how I can create experiences for people on the internet that I was normally creating for them in real life, which I'm taking as a really fun and exciting opportunity and a way for me to figure out something new for me to do. And I think that most of the things throughout my career that I've offered that have been new have usually come from a place of me panicking because I have to make money. So (laughs) (laughs) I'm very resourceful when it comes to saying, oh, shoot, I have to make money right now. 
uh-oh, and then I figure out a new th- service to offer, like a new thing to do, and, and that's wonderful. Yeah, so what are you thinking in terms of replacing in-person events, workshops, meetups? Like, How are you going about problem-solving that specific thing where maybe it was the physical nature of it that made it valuable for people? Is there a way to bring that online and have it still feel valuable for for people who are paying for that? Yeah, I and that's what I've been doing a lot this week is trying to dig into new tools and try to figure out what I can do now. And one tool specifically that I'm very excited about is Loom, which is, oh, yeah. yeah, it's a video tool where you can, basically it's quite simple in theory. It's a video of your, you can do a screen screen recording video with like your little face in the corner. So it records your face as well as your screen. And I'm really excited about that because I think it will help me to have the one-on-one support that I normally offer people whenever I do workshops. And it'll allow me to, if a student, for example, that is taking a workshop of mine, sends me something, I can send them a video back of me looking through what they sent me with giving my thoughts on it. And it's also making the design process a lot easier for me with my clients because now I can just explain myself a little bit easier. Um, so whenever I send a design over, I can record myself kind of flipping through that design deck, presentation deck and talking through it rather than having to wait for meetings because now what's happening with a lot of my clients is that they're all in meetings with their team all the time now. And so they don't really have as much time to meet with me anymore. So it's nice for me to be able to send these short videos to people. Oh, mm, okay. That's cool. Asynchronous feedback. Yeah. (laughs) With But with like the human element, right? It's not just the screen recording. Like having the face is important for that. Yeah. It is. I think it, it... Adding the human element, I think, to the design process like that is really helpful because, as you know, if you're just talking over the internet, say if we're just like giving feedback to one another over email or in Slack where we're just typing, it's easy to take the words out of context and it's easy Uh to jump to emotional conclusions about how somebody's feeling about something. So I really, I I love these videos and this opportunity to be able to show like the excitement in my face and, and, you know, be emotive about things and have people understand where I'm coming from a little bit better. Yeah, this has been one of my frustrations with tools like Slack is I feel like I have to overuse exclamation point <laughs> and emojis in order to not look like an asshole basically like yeah tone you can't just say this looks cool period no <laughs> you have to say this looks cool exclamation point otherwise it reads as sarcastic I, I don't know maybe it's all in my head no but. you're right you're totally right I remember hearing a talk from I can't remember who it was now it was so long ago but from a, a European I think it was a German developer and an American designer and they were talking about how they work together and they had that problem all the time because the German person <laughs> was like only used periods <laughs> It would like give feedback <laughs> to this designer, yeah, with yeah, no yeah. emotion. And the designer was, you know, obviously constantly overthinking the reactions. <laughs> yeah, oh, wow. You can spiral pretty easily. Yes. Yeah, I'm a I'm a pretty liberal user of emoji and emoticons when it comes to communication, especially among team members. Especially if I'm saying something that could be interpreted as negative or not sarcasm or not a joke, as I mean it. You know what I mean? Those emoticons come in real handy. Do you use emoticons or emoji? Emoji. Uh, emoticons. Zoomer. <laughs> Get out of here. <laughs> well, Meg, maybe it's a good point to transition just a bit because you've kind of 
danced around all the things that you do do, but we actually haven't listed do-do. them out. Do-do. For people who don't know, I guess maybe we should have done this at the beginning, but uh, tell us a little bit about what you're working on <laughs> oh, right <yeah>. now. <laughs> who are you? Who Jeez, am I? Did this. No, no, I, I thought about this literally within the first minute, but I'm like, it's okay. We're going to have like a nice intro and everything. Yeah. Um, but yeah, for people who who don't know, like what are you working on right now? Um, what kinds of projects? And please elaborate because... It's a long, long list. <laughs> yes. Um, okay. I'm so I'm I'm still not great at describing what I do, but I like these opportunities because it gives me a place to practice. <laughs> so there you go. Yeah, there we go. I'm <laughs> waiting for it. <laughs> so I am a designer by trade, um, but I like to mix my skill set as a designer and combine that with comedy and performance art to do a bunch of different things. So that spans freelance client work, but it also includes podcasts, talks, workshops, videos, other things that are kind of in the performance space um, because I really like creating experiences for people where I can make the world a happier place. So that includes like I have a uh, comedy meditation podcast of my own. I host Dribbles podcast, which is a weekly design news podcast. And I also have a video series and a book called Full Time You, which I also have workshops and talks through. So it's a, a handful of things. I've probably forgotten some other things. Oh, I have a shared workspace here in Minneapolis. Yeah. yeah. I founded you a... own Usenet, right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I founded a uh, collective of designers and commercial artists called Ghostly Ferns. Mm-hmm. And I think that's just about it. Uh, you write a lot at Super High. Yes, I have a I, I have a column writing. series at through Super High. Um, it's kind of an advice column where people write in and ask their questions, and I give some advice. Right, and I'm curious among all of these, uh, which one pays the bills? Because wow, what a great question! Like they could be a full time job, right? They could be, and that's I think that's the only frustrating part about my job is that. If I just picked one thing and did that one thing, any of them could be a full-time job and I could make them be really profitable and it would be awesome. But I love change so much and my personality just will not allow that to happen. So what happens instead is everything marches forward very incrementally and uh, (laughs) it doesn't make very much money on its own because I don't have enough time to dedicate to each one. So collectively... If there's enough projects... So collectively, all together, they make a salary that allows me to live successfully. Um, <laughs> but but yes, I think that the highest paying thing is always going to be my freelance design work uh, because I still work in the tech and media industries. So they have a lot of money and that's been really nice for me. And it's been really nice for me to always have that in my back pocket just in case. And sometimes, depending on my financial stability, I will hop onto more client projects or take on less depending on what I need at the time. So it's just been so nice to always have that there as an option. But I also love it. So I don't think I could ever let it go. One of my problems as somebody who is a serial side projector is thinking about passive income and like how do I take some of these things that currently take a lot of work and a lot of time and automate away bits and pieces of them so that it becomes a little bit more revenue generating while I sleep. It seems like maybe some of that's going on on your end with the workshops and and classes and maybe the writing, but could you talk a little bit about how you think about, I guess, active income, which would be your hours of work versus passive income projects? Yes. I So throughout my career, I've tried so many different points of passive income, whether it's teaching classes through online schools like Skillshare or Creative Live. 
um, or, you know, putting prints up and designs up on Society6 and all kinds of stuff, whether it's like writing and getting a, a per word amount of for that. And so there's so much that I'm constantly assessing and trying and I've, I'm, I'm open to trying any points of passive income. And, um, you know, whenever it comes to you buying into somebody else's audience, it's been hit or miss. So, you know, whether I teach a class on Skillshare or Creative Live and have another one at Britain Company, I won't be specific about naming names just in case, but some of them have been wildly profitable where oh, it's been okay. some of the best decisions I've ever made throughout my whole career because the passive income has been amazing. And they all seem like they have massive audiences. So I'm always willing to try, but some of them I do it. It takes a lot of hours of work and then nothing. Like I make, maybe make two, $600 from it. And, um, others, you know, like some of them will pay me so much per month and, and, you know, the relationship lasts for years and years because the content is evergreen. And so I've just, now I've learned a little bit about what works and what doesn't. And if I'm going to move on to somebody else's platform, then I'm going to teach something that is a little bit less exciting for me, but maybe is more applicable to a wider audience. Whereas if I'm going to move on to my own platform and be completely in charge of, of collecting the money and hosting all of the videos and all of that stuff, then I'm going to spend a lot of more time and energy on making it something that's a true reflection of what I can offer because I don't really have this corporation or company holding me back in any way so I can be as weird as I want. And so there's kind of a spectrum there of how I behave depending on the platform and the audience. But I'm still, even though a lot of the things that I try don't really work out, it didn't really amount the time that I put into it, I'm still always going to try them because sometimes you hit it big and it's awesome and other times you don't. (laughs) I I can only assume you've made plenty of mistakes and then you've obviously found some wins. Do you have advice or like patterns you've identified that would make a passive income project more likely to succeed? than not that other people could could think about? Yeah. So I think whenever, if say, for example, if somebody approaches you and they're like, we want you to do this collaboration with our company and we want you to do it because we have like 5 million followers or something. I've learned over the years that the number of followers means nothing. <laughs> it's mm-hmm. like, mm-hmm. it's amazing mm-hmm. to me. And I it always gets me very excited where I'm like, oh, they have, you know, on Instagram or on their YouTube channels, like they just so many subscribers and so many followers, and that's going to widen my own audience. It's going to be great for my own voice. And I think if they don't have the community support and engagement wrapped up in that number of followers, then nothing's going to happen. Like it's actually very, it's very unexciting whenever it finally comes out because I assume, you know, like 5 million people, this is going to be amazing and huge. And then, you know, it falls flat. Maybe I get like a thousand of those people involved. And so don't let numbers kind of cloud your judgment when it comes to who to choose. I would say what's most important is how good they are at creating a community and engaging that community because that matters so much more. I'd rather have, you know, a hundred people that are completely engaged in what I'm doing and in the community that I'm joining rather than a thousand people that I could care less and they're just kind of like stumbling upon what I'm doing. So I think it's really important to kind of assess what's going on there and how in tune to their own communities these companies are because a lot of them are just churning out content and they're just going for numbers and hoping that they can raise the numbers. And a lot of them don't care as much about numbers but care more about just being a supportive part of their community. And that's where I found the most success. 
I look at courses like the ones you make and that other people make and they're so in-depth and it seems like it's just hundreds and hundreds of hours of work to make this entire ecosystem of a course. Videos, writing, audio, files, uh, files. Like, yeah, yeah it's like project. so much <laughs> stuff. I've been really curious, could you just do a micro version of that? Like, hey, I'm going to write a tutorial and to read it you got to spend $10 or $5. Have you ever thought about like downscoping a lot of these yeah, kinds of things? that's a great question. And that's now, these are all the things I'm thinking about now that we're all quarantined. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I think it's really intriguing to me to be able to offer different sizes of information at different price points so that something's open to anybody no matter what they can afford so they can still have something to get out of it at the end. Um, for me, my natural state is to always offer everything for free because I'm not very good at business. I'm not business-minded. And a lot of times, like, for example, lately I've been just giving out this um, speaking proposal that I send out to people um, because it's really helpful for me. And so I know other people that are trying to get into speaking have found it really helpful for them, too, to at least have my template to go from. And somebody recently was like, Meg, you got to stop giving these things away for free. You're supposed to charge for these things. And so <laughs> I think, like assessing what I normally give away for free and maybe just starting to charge just a little bit for them mm -hmm. might be helpful for my career going forward and for creating passive income. But I think it's important, like, especially if, if you're a designer or a creative that makes things for a living, there's always stuff that you've made that hasn't gotten used. There's stuff that you can collect and then start to charge a little bit for it. I know a very, very, very good talented designer who takes all the rejected designs and the scrapped designs and takes them all and puts them on creative market under a different store name other than their own. Oh, <laughs> what? It's like the most <laughs> shocking but smart information I've ever heard. The the little shop <laughs> of rejected logos? Yeah. <laughs> so, you know, like if you're, whether you're an illustrator or, you know, you're creating like a set of icons and you've got all these other ones that never got used for anything, you could pop those up there. You know, there's so many things that we could be taking that we thought didn't matter or we didn't think was good enough to package into this large thing. There's so many things that we are constantly creating that we could just package up and start selling for just a little bit of money. And yeah. that, but that passive income is so important. Just the idea of, being able to make something uh, on, you know, just a project or anything, any kind of content that you're not actively updating is so amazing. I've been thinking about this, maybe not problem. I feel like there's a tension between charging for things, giving them away, and then this whole idea of building an audience. And I think the tension is if you give things away for free and contribute to the community and and write publicly and do all this work to get your name out there and get your ideas out there you can build an audience but with the idea that oh yeah maybe someday i'm going to you know make a course or i'm going to make a product and i want this audience to be the kind of people who are excited for me and want to support me but it seems that you put yourself in a position of giving things away for free and then the people kind of expect things for free yeah. and that charging for things suddenly would feel bad or people might reject that part of you. How do you think about audience building in this way as it relates to like projects that could make money in the future, but I want to have an audience for that versus it's okay to not have 
uh, an audience as long as people are paying for the value <laughs> that I'm, I'm putting into the world. Yeah, I think that tension makes a lot of sense to me because I feel like I'm constantly caught in the middle of both of those things. And for me, I think what's most important is the fact that I'm just aware of what's happening and what I'm doing. And I think the natural part of being a self-aware individual is that you're probably always questioning your actions and should I make this for free or am I devaluing my own work or am I just being a nice person and building an audience? And I think just being able to question yourself about those things constantly is great. I think it's the people that never question it. They just do it. That seems very insincere and like you're not even thinking of your audience's needs at all, which creates not the best community or engaged audience. And so for me, I always try to have a delicate balance between uh, you know, giving away things for free or just helping people in general. I try to be as helpful as I can on a day-to-day basis. And then every so often I will charge for things. Um, like, if, for example, I do coaching sessions that are an hour long. And, you know, I charge $125 for those, which seems like I, I'm, I roll my eyes at myself whenever I say that. I charge people 125 hours just to talk to me for an hour or 45 uh-huh. minutes. Yeah. And <laughs> it doesn't feel great for me to have to do that. But I try to be as helpful as I can outside of that for my audience as a whole and try to always create things for people that's helping them and helping them to be more fulfilled in their career and their in their lives. And if they need outside help in addition to what I can offer them, then they have to pay me just because it's my time and it's important and I need that. I need money in order to succeed sometimes. Uh (laughs) So Uh I think that that's okay for me. And as long as people are paying that, then I'm trying to not second guess it. But there's definitely a, there's an absolute balance that I'm constantly always thinking about. And that tension makes so much sense to me. Okay. I'm going to put you in a little bit of a pickle here. Yeah, please. I I did find a quote from you on the internet Mm -hmm. and it was, it goes like this. It says, uh, I'm the anti-advice giver. Don't listen to me and don't listen to others if it doesn't feel right for your personality. Yes. Tell me a little bit about that quote and then how you square that up with, I don't think that necessarily uh, negates the other things that you're doing, but mm-hmm. like this idea of giving advice, not giving advice, yet here you are with a business that you were coaching and doing workshops <laughs> yes, I'm giving and, advice and talking all the time. and writing. Like, how do you think about advice in general in this, yes. in this way. Yes, and don't worry, you're not a gotcha journalist. <laughs> <laughs> no, 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 I, I wasn't even um, thinking about it the no. whole time. I'm like, oh shit, hang on. I, no, I totally stand by that. And everything that I do, um, first I'll give my spiel about advice, is that um, I feel like most of the decisions that I've made throughout my life that have felt wrong to me have been basically because I took other people's advice and didn't listen to myself. Mm. And so I'm always worried about being that person for somebody else because my life is so much different from everybody else's. And the person that I'm giving advice to has a completely different life history and worldview than I have. And so ultimately, most of the things that I say worked for me will probably not work for this person because that's just how it is. And so what I like to say when it comes to giving advice is that everybody, whenever they're seeking advice, they should listen to the source that they're seeking advice from, take it in. And I always encourage that everybody seeks advice from a bunch of different voices that have authority in that space. So that way you can start to get a well-rounded picture of what a lot of people are saying. And everybody has an internal gut that they can keep checking to know what feels right for them. So 
what I like to say is just take it, take in my advice, listen to me, and but keep checking in with yourself and f- try to figure out what feels right for you. And you do not have to take my advice if it, you don't think that that will work for you or it doesn't feel right for you. And I wish that I knew that earlier because earlier in my career, I would constantly just say, oh, you know, five to 10 people told me to do this very specific thing, so I should probably just do it. And so I would do it even though I knew it wasn't quite right for me, but everybody he was telling me to. Um, and of course, then I eventually had to backtrack and stop doing it because it wasn't working for me. And so every, I mean, everybody knows that about themselves. And you can always feel it if a piece of advice doesn't feel right. Um, and I think that having the attitude for me of saying like, I always tell people right away, like, you don't have to take this advice. (laughs) Is It's helpful for me because it keeps me in check every time I am offering advice to people. Normally, I like to say, this worked for me, rather than saying, this will work for you. Um, I usually like to tell my own story and what what has worked for me. That way, people can passively listen to it and decide internally if they think that would work for them as well. But it also keeps me in check constantly of always thinking about others whenever I am giving advice to make sure I'm accounting for all different types of people and people with different worldviews from mine. And I think that's the exciting part about the work that I do is I'm trying to cater to as many people as possible, as I'm trying to teach as many people as I can. And so it, it helps me to have that perspective so that I can make sure that I'm giving very inclusive advice as much as I can. One thing on that I've found myself conflicted on is this idea of sort of couching any advice I give with, you know, what you said, uh, this worked for me or in my experience, this thing worked better than the other thing. Like, I feel like I find myself saying that all the time. And what I'm wondering is if it's discrediting the person who's receiving that from like making it an intelligent decision on their own. And I'm just one data point. Like I, I should assume that other people are giving this person advice too, or at least that they've sought advice from more people than just me. And for me to like always be prefixing this, you know, don't necessarily take this as advice, but here's what (laughs) I thought. Like I find that a little bit exhausting. Have you found that to be the case? Or do you think people still appreciate that reminder that, Hey, like I'm going to tell you what I think, but this is, you know, grain of salt kind of thing. Yeah. Whenever I give advice to other people, I like to make it generalized and open-ended enough to where I get, I give them little prompts to where they can eventually answer the question themselves. And I like to be a facilitator for that kind of experience. So say, for example, I'm looking through somebody's portfolio and giving them a portfolio review. I usually ask them for information about themselves. And I say, what makes working with you really great from an employer or a coworker or a fellow student's point of view? And then they give me some, some answers. And then I ask them, like, what are you really good at? What do you enjoy doing? What is it about your personality that makes you really unique? And so I have all this information from them. And then I help them to make sure that they're showcasing that as much as possible, all of these things throughout everything that they're doing. So really, I'm giving advice to them, but it's not really my advice to give. Mm -hmm. It's just their information that they've given me, and I'm making sure that they're advocating for themselves throughout their portfolio. So it's like definitely a fine line between giving somebody advice that's very stern and like, you have to do this. But it's also very helpful because I'm taking information that's coming from straight from who they are. So it's really the answers have nothing to do with me and what's worked for me. Um, But I'm taking these larger philosophies and larger ideas about who they are as a human and applying that to some advice. 
I think that makes a lot of sense. Uh, that sounds good to me. <laughs> I don't have anything I can add. That sounds that sounds useful. Get people to just ask them the questions to get them to like emerge at, at the answer on their own. Okay, so speaking of teaching, I'm curious about your podcasting experience since we are design podcasters, yes. if that's a title. Can you tell us a little about Overtime and, and what's going on there? Yeah, so I just started hosting podcasts this year, so this is very new to me, and now I have two, and it's been quite an ordeal because I didn't know anything about it at the beginning of the year, and now I feel like I know so much. Uh-huh. With with Overtime, for example, that is a weekly podcast, and it is topical. So I report the design news from the past week, and then I also dive into a deeper issue or an additional topic that helps people create better work. And that podcast has been really fun because I am generally not a person that has strong opinions about design. Um, if you show me a logo redesign, I'm usually like way too empathetic to where I'm like, I don't know, I feel bad saying anything bad because I know people worked hard. And <laughs> I just listened to your episode about the BMW yeah. logo redesign. <laughs> yes, like the BMW logo redesign, I was like, I don't know, it looks a little derpy. But then I saw it on the car and was like, okay, a logo. <laughs> <laughs> then you're like, oh no, what if a designer at BMW listens to this? Yeah. Ah. <laughs> so I, I, I was really worried about hosting that podcast at first because, I mean, the Dribble audience is known for having strong opinions and, um, you know, designers are opinionated people. We should be opinionated no. about design as, <laughs> as designers. <laughs> so I thought when they asked me to do it, I thought, I can't imagine a worse person to do this. Uh, and I told them, you know, I'm worried because I don't have strong opinions about design. Um, and they said, no, that's why we want you. We like that you have, you like to see all sides of an issue and you really assess things and come at it from an empathetic sort of place before you review things. And so as soon as they told me that, it gave me the permission to just kind of do this podcast in a way that's very unique to me and my voice. And they've been absolutely amazing in allowing me to do whatever I want. I can cover anything I want. They have a rule of if it makes me uncomfortable to talk about it, I don't have to, which I love. And so it's just been a really nice process for me to go through to find my own opinions when it comes to design. And I have. I feel like even whenever I review logos, I end up coming to some kind some opinions arise throughout them. And so I'm learning a lot about myself throughout the process. And I think it's really fun for people and listeners to go through that process with me and watch me. I think I'm sure of it that by the end of this year, I will have so many more opinions than I did at the very beginning about design, just because I I have to, like I have to come up with some conclusions here and there. So it's, it's getting me there. I'm learning about myself and I'm just becoming a, I think a better designer through ingesting what's happening in the design industry and trying to look at every issue from all sides. What's what's an opinion that you feel like is a new one for you that has emerged through the podcast? Well, I think that so throughout my life I've because I'm not a very opinionated person, I've learned when I was a kid and a tween to pretend to have opinions just to satisfy other people. So, you know, a lot of people are like, "Meg, what's your take on insert thing and <laughs> and so then I'll have to be like I don't know <laughs> <laughs> so I think that it's been really interesting like especially when it comes to um, I'm trying to think of some of the topics I've, I've talked about lately when it comes to like brand brand logo design refreshes are the biggest one that people mm. want to hear about and those are 
everybody has such strong opinions about every brand redesign, so I have to cover them because people enjoy it. And so it really scares me to have any kind of opinion that's public about a logo redesign because I don't want to be that person that's, like, bashing the logo design. I don't want to be the person that's like, wait, 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 somebody worked on that. How rude of you. And (laughs) I don't like either of those people. So I try to list the facts. I say some people are saying this about it, and I can agree with that. I think it is kind of weird that they did this gradient thing. Uh, And then I can say, but also I do know somebody that worked on that team. So I know that there were like some considerations that went into, you know, account that they had to use this gradient for whatever executive's reason. And so now I just kind of list the facts. And then at the end, I usually end up feeling like I see a little bit of both sides, but I usually find myself at a place at the end that I didn't see coming at the beginning. And having a platform to just explore my own thoughts out loud is really nice. It's kind of like therapy, especially if I don't have a guest and I have to think about it all on my own. (laughs) Just monologue it for half an hour every week. You're going to learn a lot about how comfy you are. I think this idea of critiquing in public, especially in the podcast format, is an interesting one because this shit's going on the record forever. It's going to yeah. sit on the internet. People will hear this 10 years from now when it's no longer relevant or when it will have seemed silly that people got upset about certain kinds of things. You know, the most obvious examples, just go look at Twitter when any major company redesigned their logo and be like, oh, wow, look how much everyone freaked out and how little it matters today. Oh my gosh, so yes. I, <laughs> I find myself conflicted with that feeling, but also with the feeling of, there is objectively bad work that happens at companies that we know and we don't have a great medium to talk about that because I think we're all a little bit afraid of how it's going to age or the community is so small that we're going to upset people that work at these places that we know. I'm curious, yeah, how do you think about that? Because that... For me, that is a tension that I think about a lot. There are things that seem worthy of critique that we kind of skate around and it doesn't feel great to do that. But as a person, it feels like the right decision. I don't, I don't yes, know. no, I totally get what you're saying. I have that issue a lot and I've been getting over a lot of those hurdles in hosting this podcast because I think that I'm always, I'm a people pleaser. I want everybody to like me. I assume everyone hates me. So I do things and I don't cover certain things because I know they're hot issues and I'm afraid people will hate me if I give my opinion. And so (laughs) sometimes I don't cover those things. But through doing this podcast, I care less. Because I, oh, no. I've started to care less about what people think of me. Oh, oh, that's yeah. Good. That, no, I don't <laughs> I care less about the podcast. I just care less about design. <laughs> no, <laughs> I care less about what the reaction is going to be, and I care more about just saying what I think is the right thing to say about that topic, mm. which feels so great to have gotten here. And I, at, you mean, even at the beginning of the year, I would never have done any of this, and so it's really nice for me to get to a place where I can say things that are true to what I feel and stand up for myself and my own beliefs. Um, and that feels really empowering. But it, I think it's also helping to make the community more empathetic. And I think it's helping us move forward. And I think uh, it's always important to have an outlet where you can speak your mind and feel safe enough to do that. And I think that I've created, Dribble has allowed me to create a space where I can do that. And of course, I'm sure if I say something they'll, that I shouldn't, they'll slap me on the wrist as well as every listener <laughs> out there. Uh, <laughs> but that's that's the, that's good. the zone that 
I'm most yeah. interested about is like what is considered not an okay thing to talk about, right? Yeah, I, I that is interesting to me as well. And I, I don't know. I think um, for me with this podcast, I try to not cover like politics as far as election coverage uh, goes and yeah, that kind yeah, of thing. Okay. Um, mm-hmm. I'm sure there are a lot of wonderful design conversations that can be had around that, but I don't want to alienate listeners and I don't want to, um, I don't want everybody to hate me, but <laughs> in hosting this podcast where now I have like, you know, thousands of people listening to me every week, it's been such a wonderful growing experience for me because I've gotten over the hurdles of having, finally, I got a really negative review and it finally <sighs> happened. Yes. Do you remember what it said? Oh my God. It was horrible. Um, <laughs> Tell me more. <laughs> it was on uh, Apple Podcasts and it was just someone who w- said that my tone was so bad that they oh, would no. prefer voice dream over my voice. And I had to look up what voice dream is. Um, voice dream is an accessibility tool where it's basically oh. a computerized robot voice. Um, <laughs> oh man, that's brutal. <laughs> so, but it happened and it wasn't nearly as bad as I thought it would be. Like it didn't feel as bad to me as I thought it would. And so now I kind of got over that hurdle and was like, wow, I got through it and it's okay. It's, it's okay. And so now I feel very excited and empowered to just not, I don't care as much about what people think of me, which feels so great to finally have gotten here. You know, I I can relate a lot to that. The one that I remember, like the fact that it just comes to mind immediately is when Bryn and I were doing the podcast earlier, we got uh, an iTunes review. I think it said, the Silicon Valley douchebaggery is thick in this podcast. Oh. And then it went on to elaborate why our podcast was bad. Oh, and, you know, that kind of sucks. But it reminded me, I've had a couple of interactions recently on Twitter where people quote retweeted something that I said and basically were like, you know, this guy is an idiot or I hate this point of view, blah, blah, blah. And normally I just ignore that shit. I'm like, I don't have time to mess with this person. But I had two instances recently where I just replied and said, you know, it was specific to the tweet, but just sort of engaged with the person and and said, hey, did you consider this? Or I was trying to point out this and ended up sort of resolving that, I think the person maybe was a little bit startled that I replied. Like, <laughs> yeah. mm-hmm. So anyways, as, as I'm thinking about this person leaving this horrible review for you on, on iTunes, it's like, I bet if that person talked to you or you could reply to it, they would probably panic and feel yeah. really bad. So I've released a bunch of products in my life and I always pay attention to Twitter and whenever I get a negative tweet, I'll say, I'm sorry, you feel that way. What could we do to make things better? And almost every single time the person is like, oh, well, actually it's not that big of a deal. I just, you know, and as soon as you talk to them, almost universally they step back and realize they weren't just screaming into a void and there are people on the other side listening and paying attention to what they say and maybe being an asshole feels good in the moment but uh, when another person is on the other end of the line and actually applies to you and goes oh hey uh, sorry you feel that way how can I help (laughs) people back down real quick Kill them with kindness. Yeah, yeah that exactly. Just, that interaction just similarly just happened to me a couple weeks ago where I tweeted something that somebody had a very strong opinion against. And uh, so they responded to me, but I was also on vacation while they responded to me and I wasn't on my phone for a few days. And once I finally got back to civilization and looked at my phone, I got uh, there was a bunch of angry tweets, you know, like a thread of tweets happening about how 
I was just not addressing them and just ignoring them and nobody wants to talk about the hard issues. And and I was like, whoa, settle down. I've been out of town. Oh, so I took the time God. to respond and said, sorry, I've been on vacation. And then I gave my thoughts. And then immediately I got a DM from the person and they apologized. They were like, I'm so sorry. Yeah. That was really inconsiderate of me to have done that to you. I feel horrible. And it was wonderful. I think there and I know this for a fact because I've talked to people who are like this. Um, I think there's people who want to get involved in Twitter and they want to be a part of a conversation, especially when we have this like quote unquote design Twitter drama. There's people who who want to just put their voice out there. And there have been cases where I've seen people do that and I DM them and just like mention, hey, that's like a pretty rough attitude or point of view and they immediately walk it back. But what one person said to me that was interesting was, I just see other people respond negatively. So I figured that was like the expectation. Wow. And this (gasps) was somebody who was new to Twitter. Like I think they were a younger Mm -hmm. designer trying to sort of figure out what sort of tone they should have online. Okay. And that Mm -hmm. was the expected tone. That's fascinating. And we, we had actually a really positive conversation about it. It was like, Look, we've all been there. We've all said shitty things, and I, I have not, <laughs> I have not been for uh, lack of hot takes on Twitter.com. But in general, like there are people on the other side of that who are actually going to be reading that and responding to that and internalizing it. And if we can avoid it, I think we should. That's fascinating. Yep. I think throughout my life, all those wonderfully horrible things that I've said, where I've like cringed just thinking back to. The- to the thing I said, you know, a decade ago or whatever. Mm-hmm. All the things that I've said throughout my life that were so bad that I it was when I was trying to figure out who I was and I was like in a new group of friends or like trying something new and so I'd say something that I wouldn't normally say and then, you know, then I get a slap on my wrist and that's how I learned like, oh, yes, that was bad, that wasn't even me. And so that's kind of how I figured out who I am eventually is through figuring out who I'm not. And so this makes so much sense about Twitter when somebody comes in and they're just trying to figure out what they're supposed to say so that they can fit in in that community. And then they get a slap on the wrist and they're like, of course you're right. (laughs) That was terrible of me. Yeah. Yeah. They're like, why did I can't even believe it's not me that I wasn't even being myself. I was just, yeah. Anyways. I think it's a problem. I'm, I'm glad that you're on top of it. And it seems like you, <laughs> as you mentioned, you snuck in a vacation amongst it. So <laughs> it sounds like you're in a good place. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, all right, Meg, we're a little over an hour. I think we should move on to some cool things and wrap this bad boy up. Um, all right. You want to kick us off? Who's you? Me? You, yeah. <laughs> you is me Who is you. you. Me? <laughs> I'm never you. <laughs> cool thing. Okay, yeah. my cool thing is my forever cool thing, um, and it's extra cool on my butthole. <laughs> it's <laughs> it's uh, my bidet. I have a tushy brand bidet. This is now sounding like a podcast ad. <laughs> um, so we are not sponsored by Tushy. <laughs> I have a uh, I have a bidet that I got someone else, and it was totally one of those gifts where I bought it for myself and said it was for him. Uh Um, And it's been absolutely amazing because it just, I feel great. I enjoy using it. And now that all of the toilet paper is gone from every Mm -hmm. every store, I am going to be okay. Yeah. You are a woman after my own heart, Meg. (laughs) I've I've shared my love for toilet washlets before on the podcast. And now more than ever, this is an applicable thing to mention. Did you shop around before landing on Tushy? Like what what's the no, landscape? I got like the I got the Tushy 
when I didn't know of any other cheap bidet options. And so I only knew of fancy bidets and, uh, and they were quite clunky looking. And then I saw the tushy one and was like, ooh, so sleek. And there were color options, which I mm. love. You could choose the color of the knob. Uh, yeah. <laughs> and, and it didn't really require um, any knowledge of plumbing at all. So mm. I was like, 70 bucks, no problem. I got yeah. this. Mm. And uh, That's cheaper so th- than a roll of toilet paper nowadays. <laughs> <laughs> oh, it's so true. <laughs> so I, I just jumped on it immediately because I think the brand spoke to me. And they had a T-shirt in their store that said, ask me about my butthole. And <laughs> I just loved that so much. Oh, yeah. uh, <laughs> Zeal. I'll <laughs> yeah. take you up on your offer. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Tushy's a great brand name too. It's very nice. It is. Yeah, Just like, don't go to Tushy.com because I made that mistake. I kept sending people uh, links to Tushy.com, like buy nope. this. And I, it's a porn site for butts. It's a butt, <laughs> yeah. butt site. <laughs> I think it's Hello yeah, Tushy. What's the actual website? I think Hello you know? Tushy.com. Okay, there you go. Great, cool thing. <laughs> yeah, very cool thing, Meg. Um, Brian, you want to go next? Yeah, I'll go next. And actually, this is. Perfect. This will sound familiar. Um, all right. So my cool thing is a little self-serving. Uh, it's entirely self-serving. But uh, the product that I've been working on for the last uh, like nine-ish months should be out right now as people are hearing this. Wow. So, uh, we've finally wrangled our way through all the approvals and the the work to get this thing ready to launch. But the GitHub mobile app should be in the App Store and the Play Store for iOS Ooh. and Android. Yeah, As yeah. of today, Wednesday, uh, March 18th. So if you want to check it out, if you use GitHub, if you want to just uh, play around, go grab it. That's, uh, you know, feels good to ship stuff. I'm excited. Congratulations. Yeah, yeah congrats, man. That's awesome. Big push. All right, Marshall, wrap us up. All right. I have a YouTube playlist to recommend to y'all. Oh. So uh, last episode, we talked a little bit about video games. We we used Overwatch as uh, an example of the metagame when we were talking about metagame and design. And got a couple tweets about people saying, hey, it's cool to hear video games recommended on, on a design podcast. So... Here's more for you. Um, yes. Oh, you want video games? Here's video games. <laughs> yes, yeah, strap in. And and really the intersection of of games and design. So this is a playlist by Ars Technica, who has their own like tech site, but they also have a YouTube channel, and they have a bunch of videos on this playlist. Twenty one to be specific. This playlist is called War Stories, and it's interviews with game designers and game builders in general talking about the problems that they had to go through in order to ship their games. And they're all interesting, but the one that I'll recommend is the 13th video in this playlist. It's uh, called How Slay the Spire's Original Interface Almost Killed the Game. It's a Slay the Spire is kind of like a roguelike mixed with a card building game or like a deck building game. So kind of mm-hmm. like Hearthstone meets Spelunky or something like that. I don't know. It's hard to describe. But these game developers talk about how they had to change the interface of their combat system to make it obvious how players were going to interact with in the fights and how each enemy character was going to project the move that it was about to do so that you didn't have to hover over every single character to find out what they were going to be doing, etc. Just really interesting kind of behind the scenes of the problems that game designers have to deal with. And I think there's a lot of overlap with what we do as app designers as far as thinking about user intent and 
user understanding of what's actually happening on screen and really delving deep into the research of it to to solve a problem that is otherwise kind of intractable. I so, love yeah. it. Yeah. yeah. I mean, we've talked about video game design a lot since you joined the show. Especially. <laughs> yeah, sorry. Uh, or you're no, welcome. I, think, I don't know. No, it's good. I mean, there, there is so much overlap. And it's funny, it's usually from an opposite perspective, right? It's like progressive difficulty instead of like, how do, how do we make this appropriately hard for people to, to play? Whereas maybe we have a little bit of a, a different problem in, in like interface design. But uh, yeah, so many of the same overlapping challenges. So cool thing. Cool thing. All right. Uh, well, Meg, thanks so much for joining us yes, yet again. Thank you. Yeah. Um, <laughs> for for people who should follow you on the internet, what's the best way to do that? Yes, on the internet, my handle is at darn good with four O's. <laughs> four O's. And uh, darngood.co is my URL. Also with four O's. No, oh, very confusing. confusing. I'm so using so personal brand. Oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> All right, we will have links to all of your internet places in the show notes. Thanks again, Meg. This was fun. Thank mm-hmm. you. Awesome. All right, that's it. That was our interview with Meg Lewis. We hope you enjoyed it. Let us know what you thought. We're on Twitter at Design Details FM. Check the show notes for all the links and stuff we mentioned and be sure to follow Meg on the mm-hmm. Twitters as well. If you enjoyed the episode or, or have feedback from Meg, you should tweet at her and tweet at us too and, and tell us both what you thought. Like I think that would mean a lot to Meg to hear what people thought. And then of course, you know, Marshall and I love reading the tweets. So we do. That would be awesome. And of course, before we go, a huge thank you to Fathom Analytics for supporting the show today. Fathom is a privacy first analytics tool for all of your websites. We use it. We love it. You should give it a try. You can get $20 off your first invoice by going to designdetails.fm slash fathom. Give it a try. Sign up. I think you're going to really like it. It's incredibly simple to use. It's fast. and It's going to get you just the right amount of data for all of your websites and projects to help you make better decisions. So designdetails.fm slash fathom. Of course, if you want to support the show individually, go to patreon.com slash designdetails. That's our Patreon, where for just a buck a month, you can get access to a sponsor-free feed of episodes, as well as access to bonus land. Bonus, bonus land, land, bonus, bonus land, land, bonus land. And uh, thank you to all of our new patrons this week and for supporting the show. Of course, if you need more podcasts, go to spec.fm. That's our podcast network for designers and developers just, just like, like you. you. <laughs> Is it echoing in here? <laughs> And just to round us out, if you want to leave us a review on iTunes, we love reading iTunes reviews. That tells Apple that you listen to the show and helps them promote us in front of more designers so that the show will keep growing. So if you've been a long-time listener, if this was your first time listening through, uh, take a minute and leave us a review on iTunes, and we'll, we'll try and read those out on the show in the future. So thank you, everybody, for listening. We hope you enjoyed the show, and we'll see you on the internet. Until next week. So long. What you just said reminded me of an anecdote from my childhood. When I was in the second grade, I want to say, my friend and I were really into just electronics and like 
taking things apart and like trying to understand circuits and transistors and capacitors. Like we were just into all this shit. And one of our fascinations became hidden cameras. We were like, oh, we're going to install like security cameras everywhere. (laughs) And like, I don't know what the fuck we were thinking, honestly. But anyways, we were at school, second grade, in the computer lab. And we're like, we should go to (laughs) hiddencameras.com. Spoiler alert. It is not content that a second grader should see. Oh, you poor things. <laughs> when I was in high school, there was a uh, there was a site that was whitehouse.com, which is not the same as whitehouse.gov. Oh, and no. my school made the mistake of uh, <laughs> when suggesting we should do research for our like social studies classes, oh. recommended whitehouse.com. Not the thing they wanted to say. Oh, no. <laughs> and it wasn't blocked in the computer labs or anything for, for a little bit of time. So, yeah. <laughs> a little scary, scary territory there. Oh, Lord. Well, all right. Back to Tushy. 